Well, at this time, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as we make our way through this letter from the Apostle Paul, we'll consider verses 8 through 21 today, but just for context, I'd like to begin reading in verse 6. And so, let us once again give ear to the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, so that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, or you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly, poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When, revi when reviled, we blessed. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse. Of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, in a spirit of gentleness? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, as I've said, the church in Corinth was plagued with many problems. But so far, we've only been able to consider one problem in particular. And that's because the Apostle Paul, beginning all the way back in chapter 1, verse 10, began to address the problem of division within the church at Corinth. And he's continued to harp on that issue all the way through chapter 4. Well, we've considered the fact that the, 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 although 
the symptom was division within the church. The root issue was the fact that the Corinthians were wise in their own eyes. Although it may seem very humble for them to be devoted followers to a particular leader within the church, whether it be Paul or Apollos or Cephas, in fact, that behavior shows that they were puffed up with pride in favoring one over another. You see, as they focus upon one leader, at least their perception of that leader, and they give all of their devotion and loyalty to that one leader, what they do, in fact, is harshly and critically judge and condemn the other leaders within the church. They were, they were critical of the apostle Paul in judging him, being wise in their own eyes. Well, so Paul, for the past chapter and a half, has been able to, has to give them an accurate reflection of what true Christian ministry looks like. The true role of a Christian minister, using the metaphors of a farmer working together with God in his field, or a builder laying upon the one foundation of Jesus Christ and building upon that foundation to make a temple of the Lord. Or, as we saw last week, a steward of a household. Uh, the one who is responsible for the administration of the mysteries of God. And Paul uh, uh, said that he applied those metaphors to himself and to Apollos, not because he's concerned with his own Christian ministry, but because he's concerned about the ministry of those who were currently serving in the church at Corinth. He said, let each one of those people watch and take care to see what type of materials they're building, Those are the ones that he's really focused on as he is, uh, in effect, rebuking them for being wise in their own eyes. And so the Apostle Paul took a very direct tone, starting in verse 7, when he says, Who sees anything different in you? In other words, what makes you so special? He reminded them of the fact that all that they had in Christ was a gift of God, and they received that gift through the ministration of the Apostle Paul, who was a steward of the mysteries of God. Well, he continues uh, in that very direct tone as we pick up in verse 8 today, as he shows what sort of boasting they were making when he says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Well, what does that boasting look like? Well, the Apostle Paul uh, begins in verse 8 to say, you have all that you want. And of course here we should note a not-so-subtle tone of sarcasm as the apostle writes. He says, literally, you are full. You're filled to the brim. You need nothing. See, the apostle Paul with this sarcasm shows that they thought that they were perfectly fine without the apostle Paul. They had no need of him whatsoever. He says, already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. See, we've noted the Corinthians have bought into what Martin Luther has identified as a theology of glory. A theology of glory which promises our best life now. And so the Corinthians saw themselves as having health, wealth, and prosperity, and they were able to accomplish this all without the aid of the Apostle Paul. At least so they thought. And so Paul lays into them with this sarcastic tone as he says, You have become kings without us. Well, he takes the wind out of their sails in the second half of verse 8 when he says, Would that you did reign. 
showing, when in fa- showing, in fact, that they were not as they thought. Paul says, I wish that you did reign because we would share the rule with you. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul doesn't condemn them for desi- their desire to reign. And in fact, he says, look, we would share the rule with you if, in fact, you were these conquering kings that you pictured yourself as. And in fact, the promise of the gospel is that we will, in fact, reign with Christ. As we saw in our reading of the law today in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, to the one that overcomes, I will grant him to sit on my throne, even as I have overcome and sat on my father's throne. Paul will go on to tell the Corinthians that we will judge the world together with Christ in chapter 6. This is something that is promised to us, that we will be seated together with Christ and rule and reign with him, and yet now is not the time. And so it's not the concept of reigning that the Corinthians are wrong, it's the timing of that reign. They're jumping the gun in God's plan of salvation. Now is not the time for glory. As Paul will say, now is the time for suffering, suffering with Christ in order that we may be glorified together with him. And then in verse 9, Paul takes, turns his sarcastic tone to give a more honest assessment of his role as an apostle. You see, some in Corinth were judging Paul, and, and the problem that they had with Paul is that he didn't act very apostolic. He wasn't really claiming all the power that he was supposed to wield as an apostle. He didn't even take their money. And they had an issue with that, as he will deal with in chapter 9. But here in verse 9 and following, the apostle Paul gives a very honest reflection of what an authentic apostle looks like. He doesn't look like the celebrity speakers of the day, the so-called sophists, who uh, were really just rock stars who had their devoted followers. But the Apostle Paul shows this is what a true apostle looks like. This is God's real design for the apostles. As he says in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all. You see, Paul goes on to talk about the fact that the apostles are put on a public display before the whole world, before all of creation, before men as well as angels, not as the most imminent, not as the the ones leading the charge, but rather as last of all, as last of all, like men who were sentenced to death. I think Paul builds upon a metaphor that was common in the ancient world, that is, of a victory parade. You see, boys and girls, in the ancient world, when a king would go out with his armies and he would defeat uh, his enemies, they would have a great parade as they would enter back into the city, and the king, the the, the victorious, conquering king, would lead that parade, followed by his troops, and then bringing up the rear were the prisoners of war who were sentenced to death. And that's the, that's the metaphor that Paul is building on here as he says the apostles are not those victorious conquering kings as the Corinthians pictured themselves. But rather, Paul says, us apostles, we're bringing up the rear. We're those men who are sentenced to death. And this ultimately is following the teaching of our Lord. 
Didn't Jesus have to tell his disciples time and time again that if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you have to be last? Really, I really appreciate this one story we read of in Mark chapter 9 as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem to go to the cross. Meanwhile, the, his disciples are bickering and arguing with each other about who is the first, who's going to have the most power in the kingdom. And Jesus, as they come to Capernaum, he asks his disciples when they go to a house to stay, what were you discussing on the way? And we read that they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. You got to appreciate that. You got to appreciate uh, the fact that the disciples are no different than us. That is, Jesus has his mindset on going to the cross, his disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus, who knows the heart and mind, When they sat down, he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. As in another place, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give give his life as a ransom for many. So it is with the apostles. And so the call as an apostle was a call to suffering and even a call to death for the sake of Christ as we read of with Paul, with his original call, when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. On the way to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him and called him to be an apostle. And when the Lord told Ananias to go to Paul, he says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's what we typically think of as the role of an apostle to carry the name of Christ, to proclaim the good news of the gospel before all the world. But Jesus goes on in in describing what the nature of this call is like when he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's part of Paul's calling, is to suffer for the sake of Christ. Same thing with Peter. The the, the Lord Jesus revealed to Peter that part of his call as an apostle would be to suffer the death, a martyr's death for his sake. And so Paul's just giving an accurate, honest uh, account of what it means to be a true, authentic apostle. It's to be like a man who is walking to the gallows or a man who is walking to the gladiator pit to be fed to the lions. It It is a death sentence. And Paul says that's how we apostles are. We're exhibited before the world. We're last of all, so that Christ's name could be magnified. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, we are fools for Christ. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now, of course, what Paul is saying here is what he's been building on for the past several chapters, where he says what is foolish in the eyes of the world, namely the scandal of the cross of Christ, this message that a crucified Messiah is somehow uh, uh, accomplishes salvation, and now we ought to pick up our cross and follow after him. That's foolish to the world. And yet Paul is determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. And so in the eyes of the world, he is a fool. And yet, because he's a fool in the eyes of the world, he, in fact, is tapping into the wisdom of God. Here, Paul 
goes on to take these terms that he used back in chapter 1, verses 26 and following, to describe the majority of the church. So he says, not many of you were wise, according to the flesh. Not many of you were rich. Not many of you were powerful, as he asked them to consider their calling. But now the Apostle Paul takes those terms, which he applied to the overwhelming majority of the church, and he applies it to himself as an apostle. He says there in verse 10, we are fools, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And here again, we, we hint, uh, there's these hints of sarcasm as the Apostle Paul is, is uh, putting them in their place. And then to, to describe this sort of humility and suffering that he experiences as an apostle, he gives a list of his suffering in verses 11 through 13. Now, this is not the only place where the Apostle Paul will list the specific uh, uh, trials and tribulations that he undergoes as an apostle. Perhaps one of the biggest, uh, the the clearest and most detailed list of the sufferings that he has as an apostle is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul lists these, uh, these trials and tribulations not to complain, not to brag, but rather to highlight that suffering is a true mark of an apostle. To show that he is an authentic apostle, he highlights the things that he suffers on on behalf of Christ. He says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted. You see, Paul did not live a cushy life of prosperity. He didn't, uh, he didn't have uh, you know, a mansion on Lido Island. He didn't uh, 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 drive a Mercedes-Benz. But rather, he deprived himself. He often went hungry. He often uh, uh, was, uh, you know, did not have fancy clothing. All of this for the sake of the gospel. He even says he was homeless. Now here the idea is that he had no permanent place of residence. He didn't have a, 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 a place to call his own, but rather was constantly on the move for the sake of the gospel and was reliant upon saints in various cities to host him. When he first came to Corinth, back in Acts chapter 18, he stayed with Priscilla and Aquila and worked together with them because they were in the same trade. And again, he's following after the example of his Lord, who said in Matthew chapter 8, foxes have holes and birds have the air, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So it was with the Apostle Paul. He deprived himself of all of these things for the sake of the gospel. And he says, we labor with our own hands. Now, the upper class of Greco Roman culture valued a sedentary lifestyle. They they valued a life of leisure, and they thought that manual labor was beneath them. And so it was with the sophists of Paul's day, the rock stars in the city of Corinth. They wouldn't do manual labor. They would have servants to do those things for them. And yet the Apostle Paul says, we work, we labor. Now, actually, you have to go on in chapter 9, to explain why it is that he does these things, that he doesn't take money from the Corinthians or ordinarily take money from the churches. He works with his own hands doing the trade trade as a, as a tent maker in order to promote the gospel. 
so that he wouldn't have to be a burden upon the churches. He does that willingly, even though as an apostle he could receive money. And yet this is part of his suffering that he does to promote the gospel. He says, when reviled, we bless. This reminds us of what our Lord teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And Paul, in Romans chapter 12, says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what the Apostle Paul did whenever he was reviled, whenever he was criticized, whenever he was persecuted. He he did not reply in kind, but rather he blessed. He endured. He entreated his enemies. And all of this setting the example of his Lord Jesus Christ. And he sums it all up when he says at the end of verse 13, we have become and still are, nothing's going to change, we still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. These two Greek words translated scum and refuse are very interesting Greek words. They, they, they describe what it is after, you know, you've, maybe you've done spring cleaning. And, and you, if you have tile floors, you've got to scrub those floors or scrub the grout. And, and the, the gunk that starts coming off as you, you know, really get in and scrub things. Or uh, if any of you have a Dyson vacuum, and you vacuum the whole house and you vacuum all the rugs, you get to see all of the gunk, all of the, the dust and dirt and hair, all of that stuff builds up. And it's so satisfying to hit that button and drop it right in the trash, isn't it? That's what the Apostle Paul is likening himself to. As an apostle, that's how the world views him. He's not like a conquering king. He's not like a rock star sophist. He's like a scum of the earth, condemned criminal. But that's his calling. And that's what it means to be an apostle. This is probably perhaps some of the the most direct language that the Apostle Paul uses. Could you imagine if the Apostle Paul wrote to you this way? And and how humbling this would have been for those who were criticizing the Apostle Paul, who were saying, you know, we really don't like his teaching style. We really don't like the fact that he doesn't use eloquent wisdom or, or rhetoric in his speech. We really don't like how he focuses upon the cross all the time. Why doesn't he talk about us ruling and reigning with Christ? Why does he keep talking about us taking up our cross and following after him? Well, now the apostle's given an accurate reflection that he backs up his words with his life. Then after even some of these tones of sarcasm, the apostle Paul changes his direct tone, or at least in verse 14, he explains his tone. As he says, look, I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed. Now, if these words that Paul wrote didn't make them ashamed, there's something wrong with them. Now, surely this should have ashamed them, but that wasn't Paul's ultimate goal. I'm not just trying to shame you, Paul says, but rather I'm writing to admonish you as a father in the Lord. He's writing to them as a firm yet loving father. As he says in verse 14, although you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. This word translated guides is uh, the the same word from 
from which we get the English derivative pedagogue, which means a teacher. But in the ancient world, it referred to either a slave or a hired hand whose job it was is to serve as the guardian of the children of wealthy people. They would uh, make sure that the, that the student made its, his way to school. They would tutor him and make sure he got his homework done. They would uh, you know, correct his grammar and they would help him uh, in, in his life. And yet, uh, for all of the important work that a pedagogue would do in the ancient world, at the end of the day, they were just a hired hand. They would not replace the loving care that a father could give. And that's Paul's point here. You have countless guides, and yet you don't have a father. You don't have somebody who will tell you like it is, who really does love you in the way in which only a father can. I think we can compare this metaphor to what Jesus says in John chapter 10 when he can contrast himself as the good shepherd with the hirelings. Those people who, who watch the sheep, but only to a certain point. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul properly retained the role of his spiritual father since the Lord used him to plant the church. He says, I became your father through the gospel. And now as a firm and yet loving father, he tells them in verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. In the same way that for better or worse, children will imitate their parents. Paul says, I want you to imitate me. Now, we might ask, what specifically does Paul want them to imitate him on? Because the, the, the sophists, who were real popular in Corinth at the time, their followers, followers would imitate them. They would dress like them, talk like them, walk like them. And yet, what specifically does Paul want the Corinthians to imitate him on? Well, I think the context is clear. He wants them to, to imitate him as he follows his Lord in a life of suffering and sacrifice for the sake of the cross. He's just listed his life of suffering, and now he says, I want you to imitate me. I want you to, to you know, you think you're that conquering king in the front of that victory parade. I want you to take the rear with me. Because if you want to be first in the kingdom of heaven, you need to be last. And somebody who knew that very well was Timothy. Paul's closest and most trusted ministry partner who was to him like a son. And so Paul says, that's why I sent Timothy to you. Perhaps upon re receiving a word of all the problems that were going on in Corinth, before he could even write the letter, perhaps, the apostle Paul sent Timothy on his way to Corinth. And his design, his goal was so that Timothy would get there and because Timothy was, uh, was a faithful and beloved son of, of the Apostle Paul, he could remind the Corinthians of his ways in Christ. He could show them tangibly in his conduct, not only in his teaching, but also in his life, of the way in which Paul wanted them to live. And yet, perhaps because they heard that the Apostle Paul wasn't coming to them, but rather that he sent Timothy to them, Paul says in verse 18, some of you are puffed up. It's literally the same word that he used uh, uh, back in chapter or verse 6. You're puffed up. They're, they're arrogant. They're proud. And what are they arrogant about? Well, they're thinking, Paul's not coming. Paul's not going to come. And so I can keep talking about the Apostle Paul any way I want. 
And yet Paul has different news for them. In verse 19, when he says, oh no, I will come to you. I am coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You see, as Paul will explain at the end of his letter, he had every intention to go and visit the Corinthians, and yet he wanted to visit, when he came, he wanted to make sure he had adequate time with them. He didn't just want to have to blow through Corinth, but rather he wanted to spend adequate time so that he could deal with all of the issues. And at present, he was not able to do that, primarily because there's a great ministry opportunity that, is, that was currently going on in Ephesus at the time. And so Paul says, I can't come to you now, but I have every intention to come to you soon if the Lord wills. And Paul says, when I come, I'm going to deal with these arrogant people, these people who are puffed up, and I'm going to find out not their talk, but their power. You see, the Apostle Paul was not impressed with man's words of eloquent wisdom. He wasn't impressed with rhetoric. He wants to know the substance of these men. He wants to know the, not just their words, but the effectiveness of their words to convey the power of God through the Holy Spirit. In the same way that he spoke about the power of the preaching of the cross of Christ, that a simple, unadorned proclamation of the, the cross of Christ is the power of God to salvation. As foolish as it seems to the world, as scandalous as it is, it is the power of God to salvation. And so that's why Paul says, look, I'm going to come and I'm going to find out that these puffed up opponents of mine are full of hot air. They can, they can talk the talk, but can they walk the walk? And Paul has this very interesting phrase in verse 20 where he says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, literally word, but in power. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul would introduce this concept of the kingdom of God, but in fact, this is ultimately what he's been teaching this whole time. As the Corinthians pictured themselves as kings, Paul shows them the real kingdom, the true kingdom. It's not about talk, your eloquence, your rhetoric, using persuasive words of human wisdom, but rather God's eternal kingdom is characterized by the power of the Holy Spirit who renews us into the image of Christ primarily through the fellowship of his sufferings at this point. As Paul says in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings in order that we might be glorified together with him. So Paul as he concludes chapter 4, as he concludes addressing this narrow topic of division within the church, he gives the Corinthians a choice. They have one of two options for when the Apostle Paul comes. Option number one, I can visit you with a rod. Now, what kind of rod is he talking about? This is the rod of correction, the rod that we read of in the book of Proverbs, where it says, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child, right? This is an instrument that a father would use to correct or reprove, chasten or discipline his son. Is that the type of visit you want? Or do you want a visit with love and gentleness? 
speaking about the fact that there would be no need for discipline because the Corinthians would repent and that they would be reconciled to the Apostle Paul. That would be a happy visit, characterized by by hugs and kisses and, and tears of joy. What do you want, Paul says? Do you want a, a discipline visit or a happy visit? Because I'm coming to you. And so as we conclude our passage today, as we weigh those options, how would we, you know, we we're in Corinth at the time, what type of visit would we want the, from the Apostle Paul? I think it's important for us to be reminded of our present circumstances. You see, the Corinthians had bought into this theology of glory. This theology that teaches that we can have our best life now. That suffering is something to be shunned. And yet the Apostle Paul once again reminds his readers as well as us that if we want to be first in the kingdom of God, if we want to achieve glorification together with Christ, we don't get our best life now. But we are promised suffering for the sake of the gospel. So we shouldn't be surprised, as Peter says, when fiery trials come our way. All of this means that the Holy Spirit uses us to conform us more and more into the image of his Son. So let us not be wise in our own eyes, but rather let us humbly take up our cross and follow after our Lord. Amen.